0: Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went away one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
2: Thanks be to God. Thank you. You could just set it on the altar. That'd be great. Well, today we are wrapping up a three-week sermon series. That's a pretty short sermon series for us um, on the gospel according to Pinocchio. And you have probably seen by now, even if you have not been with us up until now for this series, you've probably seen that there is a new Pinocchio on Disney Plus, starring Tom Hanks, um, which if you look into it at all, actually has gotten really bad reviews, <laughs> even though it's Tom Hanks, I mean, I know. I actually think, um, I, would, I think that the reason why it's gotten such bad reviews is people expect um, remakes of classics like Pinocchio, they expect they're gonna give us some kind of new window into the story, some kind of new invigoration for the story if we never really liked it before. Um, But what we get from Disney, besides real people in this one and much better graphics in this one, we really just get the same story. So if you really didn't like the story to begin with, I'm not really sure you would like this one either. (laughs) A story that um, has cropped back up into our consciousness recently because two other versions are gonna come out. So if you didn't like this one, I I hope that the other ones are somewhat slightly remade better than this one. Um, and, And throughout this very short series, what we have been exploring is the why of that. Why is it that three versions of this same movie are coming out in the fall together Pinocchio is no one's favorite Disney movie and Disney's vault. Why three versions this year? What is that all about? What's the story? And I think it's, it's that it gives us a window, a window into and a way to talk about who we are and what God wants and wishes for us and how much we really need God Okay, so let's say that we're here today because we want to be better people. We are here to be good. Maybe we can close that door. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, well, I don't know if it's locked. Is it locked? Will it
0: lock?
2: It will if you close it. Oh, it will, okay, all right. Okay, if you can, that would be great, that would be great. I just don't want her to feel awkward about being out there. Um, yeah, so sweet. So, um, so let's say that we, we all are here to be better people. Um, we're here to be good, to become more righteous. After all, like surely this is one of the main functions of religion, right? To make us, the Christian or anyone else, better than we would have been if left to our own devices. If we hadn't gotten up this fall, September morning and gone to church, we wouldn't have been better people. And, and let's also agree that if we have not yet arrived at goodness, <laughs> we are at least on our way there in some way because we did show up to church and we did decide to read scripture and we did decide that Jesus is gonna teach us how to be good people, which to be clear is no way um, you people online to detract from you watching it later online. <laughs> um, but, it, but if we all agree that, that we're here in this space because in some way we want to be good people and that by showing up we're one step closer toward goodness, um, that's, where, that's where we're going to begin today as we talk about Pinocchio. Whether or not that's the point of religion, we'll get to that. It seems to be that it's the point of Pinocchio. We get it at the very beginning of Pinocchio. The puppet comes to life and he's talking and he's moving on his own and what kind of crazy magic is that? But he's still just wooden, which is why it's weird. And he's not yet a real boy. And so the blue fairy comes and arrives on the scene to make sure that Pinocchio knows what it takes to be real. He's gotta be good. She actually says you must prove yourself to be brave and truthful and unselfish. You must learn to choose between right and wrong and then someday you will obtain goodness. You will finally be real. And then we're introduced to one of the most iconic lines of Pinocchio, we've, we've been to the other ones, when you wish upon a star and the puppet whose nose grows and, 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 and I want to be a real boy, but these iconic lines and then we get to this last iconic line from the Blue Fairy. How will you become brave and unselfish? How will you determine right from wrong? How will you reach goodness and become a real boy? Well, you must let your conscience be your guide. Take a look at this.
1: You're not really real, are you? Of course he's real.
0: He's alive, isn't
1: he? And who might you be? Gemini, Gemini Cricket. Cricket. I see a lost soul, an insect of no fixed address, an aimless vagabond hopping from hearth to hearth with no direction, no job, no prospects, and no purpose in life.
0: Now look here, just because a fella sneaks into somebody's house to warm his backside, and sure he might have gotten kicked out of a place or two, but... Okay, you have a point. Here's the thing.
1: Do you know the difference between right and wrong?
0: You darn tootin' I do. I consider myself a bug of high moral standards, no matter what you may have heard.
1: Well, that settles it then. Kneel, Mr. Cricket. I hereby appoint you Pinocchio's
0: conscience. a Temporary conscience.
1: Sure, temporary conscience, until such time as Pinocchio may grow his own. Henceforth, you are the high keeper of the knowledge of right and wrong, and a trusted counselor during moments of temptation.
0: Arise,
1: it's a Jiminy Cricket. Hey, this is more like it. (laughs) Let your job restore your pride and let your conscience be your guide.
2: How do you become good? You let your conscience be your guide. And so it's Pinocchio that introduces to us the psychological and self-help idea of our conscience. Personified in this vagabond of a cricket that will help us through navigating what is good in this life. Help us to live brave and unselfish and truthful. Help us to become real by becoming good. We get this idea of conscience, this part of our superego that transmits commands to our ego, this sense of moral goodness and in conduct and intent and in character buried down deep inside each of us, this feeling down deep of what is right and what is wrong. And so let's all agree that we come to a place like this to become better people, to become good, to engage that part of us that Pinocchio talks about. Yet the trouble with being good for us as Christians is that good people are often the very ones who caused Jesus so much trouble. A lot of good people, scribes and Pharisees, like like in our scripture today, people who had never cheated on their taxes and never cheated on their spouse, people who knew scripture backwards and forwards, people who lived by the book and kept, kept themselves clean, and people who were deemed brave and unselfish and truthful were also those same people who cried, crucify him. Why? Well, one, one reason was the way that Jesus lived. Shortly after saying um, in his Sermon on the Mount that he did not want to abolish the law, he, he did just that, he, he did. Why does, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They asked. And, and Jesus answers, um, I haven't come for you good people. I, I've come to seek and, and save the bad. The Pharisees fast, why don't your people fast? They ask Jesus, and Jesus replies, doesn't the wedding party begin when when the bridegroom arrives? Forget your rules about fasting and just come party. Look, they say, your disciples are, are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus replies, the Sabbath was made for humanity. Humanity was not made for the Sabbath. Master, heal my daughter, pleads the Canaanite woman. And Jesus says, well, I'm really supposed to only go to the house of Israel. But what the heck? Why not? And he heals her too. Rabbi, Moses said a man could get out of a marriage by giving his wife a certificate of divorce, leaving her destitute for some other um, woman that just has his attention now. And Jesus replies, well, that is a ridiculous law anyways, and sometimes you have to break a rule to do what's right. Stay married. You have heard it said, but I say to you, that's our Jesus. And so it's possible to be so good, so right, that you are absolutely wrong. You can be so religious that you miss the point of religion altogether. As Paul says, the, the law can kill you. Dry and dead legalism can, can just suck the life out of religion until it is cold and calculating and posturing in this just ugly thing. Many of you have told me that that's what you've experienced in the past. And then we get to John's story. Only John tells this story we read today. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell this story at all, but it's unique to John, but but let's just say they would all approve of it. John tells a story of a woman who is caught in adultery. They had gathered to fulfill the law, namely to stone her to death. That's how the Torah handled adultery. What do you think of our version of people's court, they asked Jesus. The law is the law, right, Jesus? Wrong. Let he who is without sin throw the first stone, Jesus says, and one by one they drop their stones and they slip away. And scholars don't actually think this story even appeared in John's original text until way later. They believe it was added way later, but, but let's imagine that there was a good reason to add it later. If Jesus didn't actually do this, it, it, was, it was certainly true to form for Jesus, at least. And by the time they added this to John's gospel, the church had been around for a long time and had thoroughly confused Jesus' earlier religion on grace and acceptance with the old rule and regulations righteousness. And so here's Jesus against sneering self-righteousness, Jesus versus the cruelty of misguided good people. Yeah, here's the thing. I don't actually think any of this is our problem with today's gospel. The message that rules and regulation can't save was once really interesting material for a sermon. It's now just become conventional wisdom. Most of us are in greater danger of what we would call antinomianism than legalism. I know, big word. Uh, Say that 10 times fast, (laughs) antinomianism. Um, Here's what it means. I I don't really think that legalism is the problem to preach anymore. We have moved on from the awareness that just obeying a few rules makes you right to the conviction that no rules are right. From learning that sometimes a rule must be broken, we, to, to, we now assume that anything goes. In a fight between like, legalistic scribes and Pharisees on, on one hand and rule-breaking tax collectors and prostitutes on the other, like you always know who we're gonna choose. That's where we are now. Big deal that Jesus overturns religious laws about how we keep the Sabbath holy and how we we prepare ourselves for worship and the sort of company we ought to keep and the sanctity of marriage. Big deal. We never kept those laws, anyways. They gathered to stone a person to death for adultery, and Jesus says to them, Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And as they, sl- they silently drop their stones and slip away, Jesus says to the woman, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then we, it's like we heap onto that story much more. Like the woman says, what do you mean by sin? And Jesus says, well, I mean like adultery, like that's wrong. So what gives you the right to judge me? And how do you know it was wrong when you know nothing about my relationship anyways, Jesus? But, but you weren't married to that man and you were married to another man. It was a loving, you know, you're supposed to, to, to end one before you begin the other. Uh, it was a loving and fulfilling relationship. And before that, Jesus said, what happened before that? Remember there was like Sam and and that loving relationship was fulfilling for about three weeks. And then there was Joe. What's up with this sin talk, Jesus? Meanwhile, Jesus says over in Matthew's gospel, think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets till heaven and earth pass away. Not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Whoever whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, Jesus says, and teaches others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Go through the rest of this famous sermon in in Matthew. Jesus just keeps intensifying this command, too. You know that adultery that is a no-no? But I say to you, even if you look at a person lustfully, it's adultery in your heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Somebody hits you on the cheek, give them the other. Love your neighbor and invade your enemy, you think? I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. No wonder Matthew reports that when Jesus got finished with this sermon, everyone in the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You want to be good, Jesus seems to say. Don't just keep the law like the scribes and Pharisees. Go beyond it. And yet we are accustomed to coming to church, and if we if we should stumble over a difficult passage like this one, it usually takes no more than 20 minutes for a skillful preacher, using the skills of historical criticism and pop psychology consciousness to explain it all away, reassuring you that a nice person like Jesus would have never said anything like that like as tough as this to a good person like you. Just let your conscience be your guide. But I don't know any other way to do that with Jesus's words. You think you've come to help weasel out of the law? Forget it, says Jesus. I've come to intensify it, to exceed it, to deepen it. And all our sweet Jesus sentimentality and gushy grace just crumbles before these searing commands We are, as Matthew puts it, like astonished by Jesus' teaching with the crowds. You want to be good? You want to be real? You want to come to life? Jesus says over and over again, keep all that I have commanded you. And so, yeah, there is the arrogance of rule stressing legalism. And that's why we don't like it. That's why the Apostle Paul showed us the delusion of thinking that fallible, limited human beings like us could ever have the resources and capacity for attaining such a higher righteousness. It's not possible. That's why Paul made sure to clear it up that goodness comes as a gift of God's grace, not through our determined human efforts, not from the guidance of our conscience. Grace assaults the arrogance of the legalist. But there is also an arrogance in the rule ignoring antinomian. And it's a, a peculiar brand of contemporary arrogance that says I'm the only one who knows what's right for me. My conscience, my conscience will be my God, is like saying I will be my guide. My opinion is the measure of all things. The rules are made up as we go along to suit the situation. Don't bother me with your judgments. I'm doing the best that I can. What right has Jesus or anyone else to tell me what I should do? Such antinomianism arises not out of an appreciation for the limits of the law, but rather out of the lack of appreciation for any limits upon our own ego. At least the scribes and the Pharisees studied God's law, right? Pondering its implications for their lives. Us antinomians, those of us, you know, turning to our conscience have no object for study other than our own feelings. Against such modern narrow-mindedness, Jesus slams these demands for a higher righteousness. He refuses to back off in in deference to our human frailty. He won't pander to to our sentimentality, patting us on the head. They're there, I know you're doing the best you can. No, Jesus refuses to withdraw even one iota. And how can you do this, Jesus? Like, how can Jesus do that? How can Jesus, knowing our frailty, our arrogant moralism, and our arrogant antinomianism, how can Jesus intensify the call and exceed the law, knowing our complete inability to keep it? It brings me back to our scripture today. Jesus says, let the one without sin cast the first stone, and then some translations say, and being convicted in their conscience, they all went away one by one. So, wait, the Bible actually acknowledges that we have a conscience, this feeling down deep in us, right and wrong, you know, that thing that will make us brave and truth telling and unselfish, like a little vagabond of a cricket with a bizarre southern accent, right? Um, it's the only time in all of Scripture where we get this word this word conscience, and the good news for us is that in the Greek, it means nothing like what we've made it in pop psychology. Jesus says, let the one without sin cast the first stone, and it says that they were convicted by their conscience, not individual consciences, but convicted by their collective conscience, that shared understanding of goodness and righteousness the disciples were speaking for all of us when they asked how in the world can we keep this law seriously jesus who in the world can be saved and jesus responds with the good news with you it's impossible but with god all things even the salvation of people like you is possible With God, it's possible because of that shared understanding of goodness and righteousness personified and embodied in that vagabond Jesus Christ. The excessive righteousness that Jesus demands of you and me is a means of making us good, but not as though goodness were the result of our own earnest efforts. Goodness arises, no, out of our being driven into the arms of that that shared collective conscience, that merciful and just God, the commands are just means of taking us there. So the Christian foundation of goodness is not the mere mastery of God's rules or their their mereful, skillful reinterpretation, but it is relationship with Christ who both commands us to keep God's law and gives us the resources to do so, namely his presence with us. And at the end of that famous sermon, where Jesus has all those things to say that we don't like, and Jesus raises the stakes, Jesus tells us to go and baptize and teach the whole world all that I have commanded you. All, really all, Jesus? (laughs) Yes, all, even the bit about turning the cheek and the giving away your stuff and not committing adultery in your heart, even all of that, And then comes the punchline at the end that makes the the fulfillment of that command possible and the burden of the law bearable. Lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. This vagabond Jesus without the southern accent. Would you pray with me? God, we we confess that we have... uh, been legalistic at times. We, we know what's right. We have a lot of people in this room who have done all the right things in life to get where they are, to get to um, being able to live here and get the job that they wanted and to please their mom and um, to, to have the family or to, to... God, we are people who often believe that we have done all the good. And, um, and so we repent, God, of being being legalists, forgetting that there is no good that comes other than from you, the collective conscience of goodness. God, we also repent though of the times where we um, begin to believe that uh, anything goes, and that if, if it just feels good to me, then it must be what you want. Um, that we are little gods over our own little universes. And we forget again <laughs> that, that the good, what is good, comes from you. God, there is good news for both of us, thank God, that we do not have to be our own way, do not have to be our own truth, do not have to be our own conscience, um, that you have given us another way and God, I know that that good news is good news for so many people, not in this room as well, um, that goodness is embodied in you, God. People who need goodness in this world right now, I think about the Philippines as, um, as this, this storm crashes in. I think about um, Iran. As chaos happens, I think about all the places in the world, God, right now that are in need of knowing your collective goodness. May we be people, God, that don't turn to ourselves, but turn to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses,